Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 23rd, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. It's already Friday, August 23rd. That's incredible to me. This month just started last week, I thought. This evening, we are going to present part 30 of our presentation on the Gospel of John, and this is subtitled, Raising Lazarus, for obvious reasons. During the course of his three-and-a-half-year ministry, Yahshua Christ had opened the eyes of the blind, healed the lame, cleansed the lepers, cured the deaf and the dumb, and had already raised the dead, as he himself had announced in Matthew chapter 11 at a point much earlier in his ministry than that which we see recorded here in John chapter 11. All of these things were in accordance with the prophecies for Israel concerning a Messiah or Savior, for which reason he was known to be the Christ, a term which means the Anointed One, and the very meaning of the Hebrew word for Messiah. But while many of these acts were recorded in the other three Gospel accounts, most of them are not found in John. It seems that John had only recorded certain of the miracles which were performed by Christ, not only in order to prove that he is the Messiah, but also to demonstrate his humility, to illustrate the division that his works caused among the people, and to explain the resulting contention that they had caused with the authorities in Judea in spite of his humility. The first miracle recorded by John was the changing of water into wine, and while Yahshua was reluctant, he was urged by his mother, which even caused him to deny her any authority over his purpose in life. While there are other acts recorded in John's Gospel, which revealed the prescience of Christ, that he must have been sent from God. The second significant miracle was the healing of a sick nobleman's son in Capernaum in Galilee. The descriptions of these two miracles illustrate the humility of Christ, that although he was able to do these things, he was reluctant at first. He refused to make any exhibition when he did them, and he wanted no credit for himself when they were done. These first two miracles, as John informed us in chapter 4, were done in Galilee, and they were well received. But then John relates the healing of the lame man in chapter 5, which offended the authorities in Jerusalem, and which compelled Christ to declare to those who opposed him that he was indeed the promised son of the prophets, the promised Savior and judge prophesied even by Moses, while his works should have led them to believe him. The rulers, scribes, and priests in Jerusalem had instead despised him. After another miracle in Galilee, the feeding of the multitude in the wilderness, 
and then the circumstances of his arrival in Capernaum and the resulting Bread of Life discourse. Many of the people who did not understand him departed from him, but they did not seek to kill him. In contrast, in John chapters 7 through 10, at a Feast of Tabernacles celebration, Christ was once again confronted by his enemies in Jerusalem, and he explained to them why they rejected him, as it was a result of their true nature as bastards. They wanted to stone him for that, and leaving them, he immediately healed a man who was blind from birth, which precipitated a second confrontation with them that same day. Four months later, at the Feast of Restoration, they wanted to stone him again. Apparently, <clears throat> John sought to create a narrative by illustrating only certain events that he thought would best relate a particular message. The contention which his great works had raised between him and his enemies because his enemies were devils. They were not the children of God, and neither could they be his children, because they were devils and they were not true children of Abraham. Christ needed no exhibition of history and genealogy to prove these things. As the innate nature of his enemies, as it was manifested in their own actions, was sufficient proof. Now upon this last great miracle before the crucifixion, the lust of his enemies for his death finally culminated because they could not deny his works and being devils, neither could they accept the implications of his works. So the rulers, scribes, and priests in Jerusalem exploited the fears, confusion, and divisions among the people to their own advantage so that they could kill him. There are historical patterns which have repeated themselves many times in history, which repeat themselves today. And Christian men have never learned from them, even though their root causes are fully revealed here in the Gospel of John. In a narrative which John had purposely constructed by illustrating particular events in the life of Christ so that we would know and recognize those patterns. If only we would believe what he wrote. But men to this day do not believe what he wrote, and they believe lies instead. So, for that reason, we have seen the Bolshevik Revolution, the French Revolution, the Great World Wars, and the resulting corruption of all Christian society today, while the very same culprits are chiefly responsible for all of the subversion. Now, the last miracle which John describes leading up to the crucifixion is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And when we discuss John chapter 12, 
It is this event to which John attributes the motivation of the people who worshipped him as he made his triumphal entry through the gates of Jerusalem six days before the Passover upon which he was crucified. So John seems to be using this event to illustrate the fact that Yahshua was indeed the Messiah, and upon this miracle, he was declared to be so by the people, although that act had only stoked the hatred of his enemies, who responded by immediately executing a plot to kill him. The Synoptic Gospels did not record the raising of Lazarus, and their writers evidently did not realize the significance of the act in the same manner and circumstances in which John presents it here. This may only have been because Lazarus was not the first to be resurrected from the dead. In Matthew chapter 11, for example, Christ had announced that he had already raised the dead, even if he denied she was dead, explaining that she was only sleeping. He had raised the young girl in Galilee, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 9. This was also recorded in the Gospels of Mark and Luke. A similar incident, which is only recorded in Luke, is the raising of a man from the dead in Nain, a town in Galilee. The son of a widow, as it is described in Luke chapter 7. These things happened at a much earlier time in the ministry of Christ. The belief that men could be raised from the dead is quite old. The legend of Inanna is found in ancient Akkadian and Babylonian inscriptions. Inanna is the Akkadian name for Ishtar, the Babylonian fertility goddess. The legend of Inanna where she is delivered from death and the underworld, but her husband is abducted to take her place. This legend we see in the Old Testament is alluded to as the women weeping for Tammuz, the husband or consort of Inanna in Ezekiel chapter 8. A similar legend appears in the tragic poets, in Euripides' tragedy, Alcestis, the heroine dies in a noble manner in place of her husband and is later rewarded for her deed by being brought back from the underworld by Heracles. While we should only account these pagan myths as fables, they do reveal that the phenomenon of continued life after death, as well as the possibility of resurrection, was understood in ancient times. And Homer and other poets had also depicted the spirits of the dead having consciousness in Hades, or the underworld. There were at least three people raised from the dead in the Old Testament, one by Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, one by Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 4, 
and apparently another rather indirectly by Elisha posthumously in 2 Kings chapter 13. But there must have been many more, as Paul had written in chapter 11 of his epistle to the Hebrews, that by faith, among some of the other things which the saints of the Old Testament had experienced, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Paul must have been referring to something which is not presently found in our Bibles, but the better resurrection to which he referred must be the resurrection on the last day, which Mariam professes in faith here in this chapter. In any event, these Old Testament incidents of resurrection had evidently all taken place before the 14 books of the prophets, which we have in our Bibles, were written, which prophecy that Yahweh will bring the children of Israel out of their graves. An earlier testimony to the prospect of resurrection is found in Job chapter 19, which was apparently written during the period of the judges. And we can prove that from the book of Job, that it was written early in the period of the judges, where we read, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the later day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Another allusion to resurrection is found in Job chapter 14. Other chapters in Job contain allusions to the continuance of the consciousness of the spirit after death, of eternal life. We have already discussed the chronology of events and how some of the perspectives and conclusions which may be deduced from the other gospel accounts may differ from the perception of the sequence of events as it is described here by John. I will only repeat <clears throat> that each of the Gospels was written from different perspectives and in a very concise manner, and simply because one event is wanting in one or more of the accounts does not mean that it did not happen. Even where Matthew wrote in chapter 21 of his Gospel that, and when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphaga, unto the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples for the colt and the ass. And Mark agrees. That does not mean that other things did not happen along with those events. It is more likely that the writers of those Gospels simply chose not to record them. As we have also explained, another purpose of John's Gospel seems to have been to record certain events which he felt were significant, but which, for whatever reason, the other Gospels did not record. So now, 
we shall proceed with John chapter 11 and the account of the raising of Lazarus, which is only found here in the Gospels. We last left off with verse 17, where Christ had just arrived in Bethany. And as John described it, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. So we will begin with verse 18. Now Bethania, or Bethany, was close to Jerusalem, about 15 stadia. And many of those of the Judeans had come to Martha and Mariam in order that they may comfort them concerning the brother. Some manuscripts have their brother. John gives the proximity of Bethany to Jerusalem as the reason that many Judeans had come to comfort Martha and Mariam upon the death of Lazarus. The staid or stadion, was a Greek unit of length, which was also used by the Romans. And before them, apparently by Persians, Babylonians, Phoenicians, and others. While Herodotus described its length as 600 podes, or feet, it had apparently varied in measure because in diverse places, the length of the pus, the Greek foot, had varied in measure. In Latin, it is stadium, and of course, that is the source of our modern English word. In the King James Version, however, it was usually translated as furlong, which is an English measure of 660 feet perhaps 10% longer than the stadion. Various commentators over the centuries have offered different calculations for the lengths for the pus, or foot, and the stadion, sometimes deduced from various relics or other archaeological discoveries. But if we accept the foot as being close to or equivalent to our own, then 15 stadia is about 9,000 yards, or just over 1.7 miles. Most differences in the measurement of the stadion are within proximation of this. As we have also seen, Bethany was near the Mount of Olives, which in Acts chapter 1 was considered a Sabbath day's journey, or the distance which the Pharisees had deemed it appropriate for men to travel on the day of the Sabbath. It was against their law to travel any further. The law of God actually tells men simply not to leave their place, however you want to define that. Then as Martha heard that Yahshua comes, she went to meet him, but Mariam sat in the house. Here there seems to be a reversal of the rose which the two women are perceived to characteristically fulfill, as we shall see later at the dinner which is described by John 
in chapter 12 that Martha is more concerned with housework and Mariam with attending to Christ. Now, as Martha encounters him, she makes an exclamation. Then Martha said to Yahshua, Prince, if you were here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you should ask Yahweh, Yahweh shall give to you. Saying this, Martha confesses, or I should say professes perhaps, a great degree of faith, along with an acknowledgement that Christ could yet do things which were even beyond her expectations. For that Christ responds rather candidly and confidently, but Martha did not understand exactly what he meant. So by her expression of faith, she was not anticipating what it was that he was about to do. Yahshua says to her, your brother shall be resurrected. Martha says to him, I know that he shall be resurrected in the resurrection on the last day. Martha had begged him with her confession that I know that whatever you should ask Yahweh, Yahweh shall give to you. But saying that, here we see that she was not imagining that her brother could be brought back from the dead immediately. Yet she does profess a resurrection on the last day. So we see how the Israelites of first century Judea had interpreted the Old Testament prophecies concerning resurrection, that at the final judgment there would indeed be a physical resurrection of the dead. Yahshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He believing in me shall live, even if he may die. And each who lives and believes in me shall not die forever. Do you believe this? There are schools of thought, even among identity Christians, quite sadly, that immortality and eternal life are attained only through childbearing, that men only live forever in their descendants. That concept is pagan in its origination, and it is not at all Christian. It does not belong in Christianity. It was a matter of discussion as early as Plato. From the 4th century before Christ, for example, in Plato's Symposium, and it is an aspect of that worldly philosophy which is contrary to God and rejected by the earliest Christians, even though the Orthodox Church later accepted Plato as part of their doctrine 400 years later. Here it is plainly refuted by Christ. It also seems to be a refutation of earlier pagan myths, since when Paul spoke to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, they had also scoffed at the possibility of resurrection. So the Athenians, evidently under the spell of their own modern philosophers, such as Plato, rejected Paul because they had rejected their own myths and legends.
Yahweh God is the word of the Old Testament. He's not the logos of Socrates. He's the word of the Old Testament, which said, let there be. And whatever he willed to be, then came into existence by his word. Yahshua Christ is that word made flesh, which had created the Adamic race to be immortal. And ultimately, they all shall believe in him. For that reason, he preached to the spirits of the dead, even those who died in the flood of Noah, so that they would believe and have liberty, as it is described in the first epistle of Peter in chapters 3 and 4. As it says in the wisdom of Solomon, which we have already cited in relation to earlier chapters of John, for God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil, not some apple, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that hold, they that do hold of his side do find it. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die, and their departure is taken for misery, and they're going from us to be utter destruction, but they are in peace. If Yahweh spoke all things into existence, and if Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate, then we must believe him when he said that each who lives and believes in me shall not die forever. He was not speaking of progeny, descendants, or offspring, but of each and every individual of that race which he had created to be immortal, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The envy of the devil by which death befell the sons of Adam is the same works of the devil which Christ had come to destroy, as John explained in chapter 3 of his first epistle. If we do not believe that the God who said, let there be, can make it so, then we are not Christians. We cannot believe Christ if we do not imagine that God can indeed transcend his creation and also take a part in his creation, which is the essence of the Christ. The Greek word pas is each here, where the King James Version has whosoever, a reading which we must reject. According to Liddell and Scott, the word is in the plural all, and among many other uses, in the singular each or every. Here it is singular. To understand the context, each of what or each of whom, other statements by Christ must be found that describe the parameters. 
In Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So we cannot imagine that the use of pas here negates that statement. Rather, that statement defines the use of pas here as each of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is verified in Luke chapter 1, where we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And we see that each of those people have a promise of eternal life in Isaiah chapter 45, where it says in verse 17, Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. And then in verse 25, in Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Likewise, Paul said in Acts chapter 26, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. So it is each of those for whom Christ had come who are the subjects of the statement of Christ here. There is an older and transcending promise to the wider Adamic race, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And the word for all on both occasions is that same word, pas. So each or all of the children of Adam shall be made alive. But not all of the people on this planet are from Adam. Yahweh created one race in Genesis. And as we see in the story of Cain. And later in the descriptions of the Rephaim and the Nephilim. And the later accounts of alien peoples dwelling along with the Canaanites. Other people already existed elsewhere who are not of Adam. It is demonstrable through scripture, history, and archaeology that the white race alone descended from Noah and the list of his descendants in Genesis chapter 10. And for that, the apostles of Christ had brought the message of his gospel to the people of Europe and the Near East, to areas which were inhabited by the white race at that time. And in a short time, they all accepted it. A short time, 800 to 1,000 years. On the scale of history, short is relative. But concerning the resurrection and eternal life, it is not for us to speculate how these things are done and then attempt to make doctrines out of that speculation. That is what the Jews have done in their Kabbalah. They have speculated as to how God creates, searching for magic substances and incantations, so that they too can create, and all they have ever actually accomplished is to corrupt his creation.
incantations. Mathematical formula, same thing. Both medieval and modern alchemists and sorcerers are men who have been lured away from the truth by the Jewish Kabbalists, and they continue among us today. Doubting that only Christ can give life, they pretend to be gods themselves. Modern science is largely based on medieval alchemy and Kabbalah, and there was a February 2018 article by Fox News titled, Want to Live Forever? You Just Have to Make It to 2050. In that article, one supposed scientist, a so-called esteemed futurologist, in other words, a clown, highly paid, called Dr. Ian Pearson, is cited as having said, if you're under 40 reading this article, you're probably not going to die unless you get a nasty disease. Of course, different articles, other articles in media outlets, tell us that there aren't going to be many white people at all in the world in 2050. So it seems to be the objective of Satan, of the Jew, that white people can't live forever, but everybody else will, where it's the plan of Yahweh to be just the opposite. And that's the truth. This statement by this so-called futurologist, if you're under 40 reading this article, you're probably not going to die unless you get a nasty disease, is arrogant, it is hubristic, and it was followed by a list of ways where it is speculated how people would live forever in the very near future. All of this is idolatry, the hope in a false god promoted by the same people who had created the Kabbalah, the Jewish rabbis, and through the Masonic lodges and academies of science, they have propagated sorcery under the pretense of scholarly inquiry throughout Christendom for the past 400 years. In the end, man will find that there is no life without God and the gift of eternal life will only be a reality in accordance with his word and his creation. Martha, believing his word, and having also understood and believed the words of the Old Testament prophets, was then able to deduce the correct conclusion based upon what Christ had told her. She says to him, Yes, Prince, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of Yahweh, coming into society. So Martha professed to believe what Christians should believe to this very day, that Yahshua was indeed the promised Messiah and Savior, and the appointed Son described by the Old Testament prophets. Now he must have sent for her sister, although John does not record it explicitly. And saying this, she departed and called Mariam, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is present and calls you. Then, as she heard, she arose quickly and went to him.
John did not explain how Yahshua expressed the desire for Mariam to be present. But the account implies that he did want her there, ostensibly to witness the raising of her brother. At the house, Mariam was surrounded with comforters, but for whatever reason, Martha and ostensibly Christ himself desired for Mariam to come with her to meet him. This seems to be another portrayal of the humility of Christ, that he was going to raise Lazarus, but had expressed the intention of doing it privately, sending for Mariam privately or secretly, even if he knew that it would not happen in that manner. Now we learn that this exchange took place before Christ had even entered Bethany. Not yet then had Yahshua come into the town, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. Earlier in verse 20, we read that Martha heard that Yahshua comes, so she went to meet him. So it seems that someone must have gone well ahead of Yahshua and those who were with him to inform Martha of his coming. And therefore, she was able to go out to meet him even before he had entered the town. Then the Judeans, who being with her in the house, being with Mariam in the house, and comforting her, seeing that Mariam arose quickly and departed, followed her, supposing that she goes to the tomb, that she may weep there. Mariam, evidently being the reason for their presence, her departure from the house could not have escaped notice, and they would naturally be curious as to why she left. If she were going to the graveside to mourn, her comforters would naturally also want to comfort her there. But perhaps this also happened by the providence of God, because in that manner, many people would witness the raising of Lazarus in spite of the fact that Christ had apparently asked for Mariam alone. So at verse 32. Therefore, as Mariam came to where Yahshua was, seeing him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Prince, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Like Martha, Mariam knew that Yahshua could have healed her brother and prevented his death. But she did not imagine that Christ could or would bring him back from the grave immediately. Then as Yahshua saw her weeping, and the Judeans having come with her weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and himself disturbed, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Prince, come and look. Yahshua shed tears. Therefore the Judeans said, See how he has affection for him. But Yahshua did not weep for the death of Lazarus. Instead, he wept for the grief which had, had caused these people who were his fellows. So we see in the promise of ultimate salvation in Revelation chapter 21. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold! The tabernacle of God, which is Christ, is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. 
and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The same promise was made to the children of Israel much earlier in Isaiah chapter twenty five. He will swallow up death in victory, and Yahweh God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken it. Then some from among them said, Was he not able, who opens the eyes of the blind, to make it that also this man would not die? And this is not necessarily skepticism, but rather it is a profession of faith from someone who was unaware that Yahshua, upon learning that Lazarus was sick, had purposely tarried in Galilee and let him die so that a greater miracle could be witnessed. As he had said to his apostles earlier, as it's recorded here earlier in this chapter of John, even before they had left Galilee, that Lazarus has died, yet I rejoice on account of you that you shall have faith because I was not there, but we must go to him. This is found in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 11. Now for verse 38. Then Yahshua, again being deeply moved within himself, comes to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone laid upon it, or perhaps a stone laid against it. If it was above ground, like the tomb in Jerusalem, in which Christ was later buried, a stone would have laid against it, against the opening. The word for cave is spelahion, and could merely describe a cavity in the ground. Both types of tombs were used in ancient Judea, and evidently above-ground tombs were preferred by the wealthy. So Joseph of Arimathea, who was wealthy and a member of the council, had provided the tomb for Christ, while the poor settled for shafts which were dug into the ground. The narrative here seems to insist that the tomb of Lazarus was above ground, as it may have been difficult for him to climb out of a burial shaft on his own. Yahshua says, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of he who is dead, says to him, Prince, he already smells, for it is the fourth day. Martha only assumed that the rotting cadaver would already smell. But if Yahweh can create life from nothing, then he can certainly also assume control of nature, reverse the process of decay, and restore the dead to life. Christ must have known where the grave was even before he had asked. And he could not have expected women to remove the stone. In Mark chapter 16, 
the women who had later gone to tend to the body of Christ were described as having expressed concern that they would not be able to move a stone from a similar tomb. But here the presence of others evidently also helped to facilitate the removal of the stone. Yahshua says to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you shall see the splendor of Yahweh? Displaying humility, Yahshua always attributed his actions and abilities to God, and all men should do the same. Therefore they removed the stone. Then Yahshua lifted up the eyes and said, Father, I am thankful to you that you have heard me. Here Yahshua, being God incarnate, Yahweh God incarnate, sets another example to men, praying to his higher self and offering thanks to God for the blessings granted to men. This is a paradox which scoffers exploit in order to undermine Christianity. However, Christ did not come to play God on earth, but rather to live and die as a man for an example to men. Paul explained this in Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 14. And because certain things are clearer, I will cite the Christogenia New Testament. Therefore, since the children have taken part in flesh and blood, he also in like manner took part in the same, that through death he would annul him having the power of death, that is, the false accuser or the devil. And he would release them, and as many as whom in fear of death throughout all of their lives were subject to slaves. For surely not that of messengers has he taken upon himself, or angels. But he has taken upon himself of the offspring of Abraham, from which he was obliged in all respects to become like the brethren. So he did pray to himself that he would be a compassionate and faithful high priest of the things pertaining to Yahweh to make a propitiation for the failures of the people. In what he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to help those being tested. The next verse supports our argument more fully, where Yahshua concludes his short prayer. Now I have known that you always hear me, but on account of the crowd which is present have I spoken, that they may believe that you have sent me. Here Christ informs us that he did pray publicly as an example to men, where he says, on account of the crowd which is present have I spoken. As there are many examples in Scripture that men do not need to utter the words, their words vocally in order to be heard by God. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, the prayer of Hannah was heard by God where she spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Furthermore, where it is attested that Yahweh, the Father, always heard Yahshua Christ, a claim which no other man could make, that must be for reason that Christ is Yahweh incarnate. And saying these things, he cried out with a great voice, Lazarus, come out. 
The dead man came out, bound at the feet and hands, with swathing bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Yahshua says to them, Untie him and let him go. Here the greatest of miracles is manifested in a manner which is very likely as humble as humanly possible. John has recorded the incident, as John has recorded the incident. Christ had never made a vocal request that Lazarus be raised from the dead, but that is indeed what had happened. Instead, the words which he uttered were only a mere profession of faith, reflecting the belief that Lazarus was already back among the living. Lazarus, come out. As we have also already discussed, the name Lazarus is evidently from the Hebrew name Eleazar, which is in turn a phrase which means, whom God helps. So we read in the 116th Psalm, For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. While Yahshua himself would fulfill those words after his resurrection, Lazarus had also fulfilled them. Lazarus means whom God helps. And in Luke chapter 1, we see in the words of Mary, the mother of Christ, in reference to the coming of the Messiah, that he has hopen or helped. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So in him, all of Israel shall once again walk before the Lord in the land of the living. John now describes the reaction of the Judeans. Then many from among the Judeans, they having come to Mariam and observing the things which he had done, referring to Christ, believed in him. Then some from among them went off to the Pharisees and told them the things which Joshua had done. Whether they went off to report him or to boast in him is immaterial. As Paul had later expressed to the Philippians, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for a defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yeah, and will rejoice. In any event, when the matter is reported to the Pharisees, the nature of the act of raising Lazarus could not be doubted. The enemies of Christ, as it is even apparent in the Jewish Talmud, must nevertheless acknowledge him even when they profess to hate him, which is what they continue to do to this very day. 
as we have already illustrated from the words of the prophets in relation to the earlier miracles of Christ, which were recorded by John, where he healed the lame or opened the eyes of the blind. Those acts had fulfilled the prophecies in the scriptures literally, while at the same time they were symbolic of the promises of Yahweh to do those same things for all of the children of Israel. For example, in chapter 35 of the prophet Isaiah, which we have already cited in relation to these things, there we read in part, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, in other words, those of arrogant and insolent and rebellious hearts aren't going to understand, say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness, in the captivity where they were being held, in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. In the later chapters of Isaiah, especially chapters 42 and 43, the children of Israel, in their captivity, are described as the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears, who are in need of this very healing. Of course, in those passages, the states or conditions of being blind, deaf, dumb, or lame, are metaphors for the condition of the children of Israel who are lost in the wilderness in their captivity, and the gospel of Christ would be the means by which they are eventually healed. This same is true where Christ had resurrected the dead. In this regard, we read a messianic prophecy one that Christ had also cited in reference to himself in Isaiah chapter 28. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with hell are we at agreement. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood, falsehood and have we hid ourselves. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believes shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand when the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. A little later on, in Isaiah chapter 29, there is a prophecy of a day of deliverance, whereby we can see that these concepts are related, and it says, And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see. Out of obscurity 
and out of darkness. A similar and more explicit promise of resurrection is found in Hosea chapter 13 in reference to Ephraim, which is the name that the prophet used to describe the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel taken into Assyrian captivity. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. Ultimately, that sin could only be hid by the mercy which is in Christ. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children, the place of their captivity. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Again in Hosea chapter 2, in reference in what I believe is a messianic prophecy referring to the passion of the Christ, we read, after two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. He raised the children of Israel. He assured the deliverance and the salvation of the children of Israel in the three days that he spent in death. Another explicit promise is found in Daniel chapter 12. Although it is rather enigmatic, and it does not promise blessings for all of those who are resurrected, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince who stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that shall sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. But the first promise of eternal life is found in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 22, where we read, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil, to have experienced both. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Yahshua Christ, being the true vine, is indeed the tree of life. And the cherubims kept the path to him, to ensure that the Adamic man would have a path by which he could return to the grace of God. For that reason Paul wrote, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who discredit the concept of resurrection from the dead fail to realize the greater object of creation described by Solomon in his wisdom that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. 
Paul of Tarsus did realize this objective, and he wrote in Romans chapter 8, for the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. The creature or creation of which Paul spoke was the Adamic creature, the Adamic creation, which is clearly evident within the context of that whole chapter. But by saying that, Paul was once again only explaining what was already written by Solomon, where Solomon had said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail God has given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. The sons of man, the sons of Adam, in the Hebrew of that phrase. Man can only be exercised in vanity, if indeed he is immortal. And therefore Paul explained that the Adamic man was subjected to vanity by God in expectation of the promise that they would ultimately be released from the bondage of corruption into that very immortality for which they were created in the first place. The raising of Lazarus was surely symbolic of that promise, which God can and will fulfill. When we return to John chapter 11, we shall see that the act of raising Lazarus had also raised Cain in a metaphorical sort of way. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. And no, Cain really isn't coming back. <laughs>